Uh, good morning, and thank you so much for praying for me this week and thinking about me this week, and it's a real honor to uh, speak in front of you today. No, no I should be okay. Okay. Yeah, just have my notes. <laughs> Sometimes we may find ourselves rejoicing in things that are rather surprising. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Finding joy in the midst of some hardships? Maybe being thankful in the midst of pain? Or expressing praise in the middle of a valley? When life gets hard, our natural instincts are to be sad, to whine or complain, to fret or worry, to put on a brave face and to try to fix things, or to despair and give up. But sometimes in the midst of difficulties, we can find unexpected sources of joy, maybe in the love and support shown to us by our family members, or in the, maybe in the way that trials often force us to reprioritize our lives or, shape our, our, um, or reshape our lives in good ways, or maybe in our own reflection or the reflection of our loved ones. My mom is a strong woman of faith, a great example in my life. Um, things seemed to go well for her, and I assumed it was because she prayed and read her Bible every day, which she did, but I didn't find out until later, when one day in church I heard her testimony, uh, the truth of the matter. My mom was not born in a Christian home. Though they went to church, there was no belief in her home. My mom was the youngest of four, and the only girl. Her brothers would pick on her relentlessly, but they also loved her and protected her, as anyone would their little sister. When she was young, her oldest brother, Doug, passed away in a driving accident. Years later, as a young woman, her second oldest brother, um, Tom, was crushed under a vehicle while he was um, working in a shop. There was a malfunction with the lift. He was in hospital for, for a time and in a wheelchair, but eventually he passed away also. In a short time, my mom lost two brothers and felt there was not much time for her and her last brother, Larry. She resolved to get away as, as, far, as far away as possible from her hometown in Saskatchewan. She took a job in what would eventually become my hometown in northern BC. It was there that she met my dad, in actually the same building that I met my wife Jessica. Though, <laughs> though for my parents it was a bar, when Jessica, Jessica and I met it was a church. My mom and dad eventually came to find Christ together, and growing up I knew nothing different than a faithful and loving mother. But I found out through her testimony that her suffering she faced early in life drew her to an undeniable conclusion that the way she was living her life was doomed. So when she got just a taste of Christ, she has never let go since. She found a hope, a living hope. Through the hardship, she found tremendous blessing in her finding her Savior. And the blessing abounded all the more for my sister and I, who grew up in the shadow of her prayer and faith. Many of the trials we, we face turn out to be blessings in disguise. I want to suggest today that rejoicing in those blessings is to be normal for believers, even if and when we can't see the blessings behind the disguise. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we take a look at chapter 1, I want to point out that verses 3 to 12 here are one super long sentence in Greek. So I'm kind of breaking a few preaching rules by breaking them into three sections. So, Luke, don't be mad at me. <laughs> 
but it's, it's also just too packed with amazing truth to rush over all at once. So today, we're going to cover just four verses in the middle, verses 6 to 9. But before we begin, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just welcome your presence here with us. You bide in our hearts, in our minds, um, and that you would teach us today in your word, Lord, and that it would impact us and take us through our week uh, into the lives of those around us, Lord, that we would bless those around us um, in the way we are and what we say. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the author of this book, the Apostle Peter, is writing these words to um, several several churches scattered around. So in verse 1, he called the believers he was writing to elect exiles. In other words, they'd been graciously chosen by God to be his people, but they were also chosen to live as though they were in exile, which involved being treated like discriminated against foreigners in a land that was not their true home. These believers were not in a fun or comfortable place in life. Life was hard for them, and yet Peter began his letter to them with an exclamation of praise in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And just to summarize those verses, um, our hope is a living hope. Hope is alive, and that's because Christ is our hope, and Christ is alive. No matter how bleak life may seem at times, believers inherently have an abiding hope. Hope for an eternal heritage of salvation in heaven where God dwells. And the main application point for all of this is that we need to praise God for this. Praise God for our living hope. For his mercy secures our internal blessing, and his power is what secures us until then. Mercy without power or power without mercy are meaningless and hopeless. But when you put the two together, you get a strong hope and assurance of our faith. We can see both mercy and power vividly displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. His mercy for our sin was shown on the cross where he died in our place. And his power was shown in in his resurrection where he trampled over death and sin. When we focus on these things, we have hope. Hope of really what is described as an indestructible future. And we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now we might think, though, that this sounds like an overly rosy outlook on life. Now how can we be filled with hope? Well, life tends to be so awful in the here and now. Now, Peter's going to show us that actually these things are completely related. Our present hardships are directly related to our future hope. To put it briefly, our present trials impact the future day, and our, fu- our future hope should impact our, our present trials. But first, Peter is going to re- reiterate his main point of this passage in verse 6. Though I will re- rephrase it differently here, it's the big idea for us today. We shouldn't just praise God for our living hope. We should rejoice in our living hope. In the present, we should rejoice in the living hope that God has given us. Look at how in verse 6 it says, In this you rejoice. Well, rejoice in what? What's this 
in this. Well, that summarizes what I just read in verse 3 to 5. So we rejoice, we praise, and we bless God because he has rebirthed us into a living hope. And we rejoice in the resurrection. We rejoice about our future inheritance. We rejoice about heaven. We rejoice in God's power which guards us. In, in this living hope, we rejoice. Rejoice. Philippians 4.4 commands us, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's not given as an imperative in the Greek or as a command here in 1 Peter, but it might as well have been because this is the posture Peter assumes believers are taking and he implies that this is precisely what they are supposed to be doing. Their rejoicing was really merging with the the praise that Peter gave us in verse 3 where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice as well, Now, when you think about rejoicing, you think about joy. Maybe you think about happiness, smiles, laughter. Maybe you think about celebrations like weddings or birthday parties. Maybe you think about sports fans cheering about a winning play or shot. Or maybe you think about being happy about your circumstances in life. Rejoicing at finishing exams or having a new baby or getting a new job. Those are all forms of rejoicing. And they all have something to do with happiness. However, joy in the Bible is much deeper than mere happiness. It is more than happiness because true joy transcends our circumstances. No matter what else is going on, we can still find joy. True joy is a chief confidence and delight in God. His promises, no matter what else is going on. See, the fact that Peter tells us to rejoice is not surprising at all. God has, has been good. Rejoice. What's surprising is the setting in which Peter says to rejoice. And that's what Peter talks about in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you have been, um, a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So in short, Peter is saying that believers should rejoice even as they are grieved. That, and that, that doesn't make much sense to us. Rejoice, though you're grieved? How can we do that? We can do that by recognizing the reality of what Christ has done. Reality of Jesus and what he has done for us. Because the fact that God loved us enough to send his son to die for us should outweigh whether or not other people on earth love us. The fact that Jesus has secured new life and eternal life for us should overshadow the life or death peril that we find ourselves in sometimes. Maybe even with our health. The fact that the Spirit lives inside of believers and that he, has never, and he will never leave us or forsake us should be more significant in our minds than the loss or abandonment of others. God has caused us to be born again. He has given us a new life, a new hope, a new destiny. So yes, absolutely we grieve. We grieve on earth. Life can be hard. Life can be sad. But at the very same time as our grief, we can also rejoice. We can say, we can rejoice, Peter says, because the things that, we gr- that grieve us actually have a purpose. Look with me again, verse 6. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Now that's a pretty complex sentence, even in English. Here's how I understand it. You rejoice even as you're grieved, so that your faith ends up glorifying God one day. I summarize the point this way. We are to rejoice in our living hope, so that our trial-tested faith glorifies God. We rejoice in our hope, so that our trial-tested faith results in God being glorified. Now, before we look deeply at verse 7, verse 6 still has um, one little last tidbit of hope here. First, for the people Peter was writing to, most of their trials were likely related to persecution. So when people put their faith in Jesus, it cost them. It often cost them their relationships or their status in their community. No one thought of them as cool anymore or even as respectable. They were often thought of as crazy. It cost people relationships as family or friends ostracized them. They faced mockery, laughter, rejection, discrimination, or worse. It cost many of them their health. They were imprisoned, mistreated, or beaten. And even some of them, it cost them their lives. These are the kinds of various trials that Peter is talking about. Now you might think, I can't relate to any of these circumstances, or not many of them. Though I would say I fully expect hostility against Christians to increase over time. But also, but also notice that while immediate context was persecution, Peter doesn't say that's all he is referring to here. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, which could include almost anything. The truth is that we are grieved by all kinds of trials on earth, not just persecution. And many of you know this firsthand. You have experienced all kinds of pain and grief in this life. Many of you have, have been grieved by the death of somebody. Or maybe you have been grieved by health challenge after health challenge after health challenge. Maybe you've been grieved by unemployment, poverty, hunger, injustice. Maybe you've been grieved by a son or daughter wandering away from the Lord. Maybe you've been grieved by the pain of infertility or miscarriage. Maybe you've been grieved by a friend betraying you or a family member attacking you. No matter what you've done through, gone through in life or what you're going through right now, what I encourage you today is to, to take hold of hope for two reasons that we see in verse 6. First of all, you've only gone through these things if God deemed it necessary. In this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. Now, doesn't that, now that doesn't mean that God is cruel for putting you, putting you through it. It means he has a sovereign plan, a purpose for what you're going through. And second of all, the various trials you have faced, no matter how long you have faced them, for, how, for all of them, being grieved happens for merely a little while. A little while. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, you might object to this and say, my trials have been relentless on me. And you feel like Job when he says, man was born to trouble as sparks fly upward. I understand that you may in fact live a miserable life. For my mom, whose testimony I spoke of um, in the beginning, her most intense period of trial happened early in her life. She had not yet lived the rest of her life, and losing her two brothers would have felt like like a, a miserable life. But if you have the right perspective, a biblical perspective, you can understand that even that is only for a little while. Even if you would suffer your entire life, 
which most of us don't. But even if you do, in the grand scheme of eternity, your suffering will be over in a blink of an eye. James talks about our life being a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. The tiniest section is your life, the rest is eternity. We get so fixated on the here and now, and and we don't give a second thought to eternity. We think about now, tomorrow, next week, maybe even a decade from now. The future can seem like it comes slowly. Now this concept has massive ramifications for the way we live our lives. Really, in every area of life, from the way we spend our money, or we spend our time, the way we plan, our goals, and what we desire in life. But today, we're talking about suffering. Suffering in the light of eternity. So do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus, every ounce of pain and suffering you ever go through happens in this section? And eternity, the rest of it, this is our hope. This is our living hope. This is Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 goes like this. So so we don't lose heart. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If If we can see trials that we go through with this eternal perspective, it changes everything. That's what Peter is trying to get across. You realize that your trials have a purpose, an eternal purpose, and this purpose plays right into his main point of praising God and rejoicing in God. Look, verse 6 leading into 7. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this pain that you feel now, it can lead to eternal glory for God. How so? Because trials have a way of revealing whether or not we have faith in God. And and if we do have faith, true faith, God gets all the glory for that. Because true faith, by nature, places all of our trust in him and not in ourselves. Now, if you ignore for the moment... Um, the words here between the dashes, um, you can see the point of verse 7 more easily. The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you trust God through trials, it results in God being praised. Now, inside the dashes, Peter paints a picture of how valuable our faith is. Your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes, though is refined by fire. Now, gold, of course, is one of our most precious commodities on earth. Gold is good for jewelry, it's good for investments, it's, it's good for all kinds of things uh, on earth. And Peter talks about gold being tested by fire. Um, that is how gold is refined or purified, by going into the fire. So even most fire won't destroy gold. Um, it just makes it stronger and more precious. But even gold can perish under the right conditions. Um, gold doesn't rust, but it can tarnish. It can be melted at 1,060 degrees Celsius, and it can dissolve under certain chemical conditions. By comparison, Peter is apparently saying that true faith in Christ will never perish, which, which makes our faith even more valuable than the most refined gold. This also implies that God actually uses our trials that we go through to strengthen our faith. And this is said a number of other places in Scripture, too, But um, I love how the theologian Edmund Clowney uh, describes this. He says, 
God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail the fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Yet even gold will at last vanish with the whole of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now scholars debate whether this refers to Christ receiving glory or us receiving glory. I would tend to think it's the former, that our faith results in God's glory, but ultimately both are going to happen. When Jesus appears in glory, two things are going to happen. His glory will be magnificently reflected in the mirror of our faith. Uh, he, will be tr- he will be the trusted one, the hoped for one, the rejoiced in one. So his glory will shine in our faith and hope and joy. And the more pure and refined the gold of our faith, the more clearly his beauty and worth will be reflected. But since God exalts all that exalt him, he will also praise, he will also give praise and glory and honor to our faith. And we will see finally that the design of God in our distress has been the extraordinary joy in sharing in the very glory and praise and honor of God himself. And we will see finally that the design of God in our distress has been the extraordinary joy in sharing in the very glory and praise and honor of God himself. Wow! Now, if that doesn't blow you away. That truth should transform the way we approach hard seasons in our life. When we realize that our present suffering will bring glory to God and ourselves one day, it might not make things less painful, but it should make things more endurable. It may not make things more understandable for the time being. It might not make things less difficult but it should make us complain less. And it should enable us to even counterintuitively rejoice. And Peter says that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus' return, the day he returns to earth. And that's the day our faith becomes sight, which is really the basis of our hope. We're hoping with confidence. We're hoping for our inheritance that does not perish, spoil, or fade. We're hoping for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We're hoping for our trials that will indeed result in glory. But undergirding all those things, we're hoping to one day see our Savior. And this is the next point we will see today from uh, verse 8 and 9. We are to rejoice in our living hope, in loving and participation for our faith becoming sight. Our love for Jesus and our anticipation for Jesus' return should help us rejoice in our hope now. We are to rejoice in our living hope, in loving anticipation of our faith in Christ becoming sight. See how Peter says that. that, So that it may result in the glory and honor and praise when Jesus Christ is revealed. In verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, Now you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So these, so these particular early believers were in kind of a similar position that we are today. We haven't seen Christ in the past, and we don't see him now in the present. We, might, we must have faith that he exists, that he lived, he died, rose again. Faith that he will come again one day, that our faith will have an outcome. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith in Jesus is believing in Jesus despite having not seen him yet. What sustains our faith in the hostile days in which we live is love and anticipation combined. We see both of them here. Though we have not seen him, though you have not seen him, you love him. Uh, How important is love to our faith? I don't know how you could sustain a faith in Christ without a love for Christ. So I ask, do you love Jesus? Even though you didn't see him on the cross, even though you did not see him rise again, do you believe that he accomplished those things out of love for you? If you do not yet believe, I desperately urge you to do so today. No one takes kindly to their love being scorned, least of all holy God. But the amazing love and mercy of God is available to you this morning. If you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ, dying and rising again in your place, that pours out on you. And if you already believe that to be true, the natural response is to love him in return. We love because he first loved us. And now, here's the telling question. How do you love him? How do you show your love to him? How can we cultivate a love for Christ that grows and grows ever more each day um, until we see him? I'm not going to answer that question for you today, but you may consider things like how you spend time with him or his people or serving him or how you worship him. Many possible answers here today of, of how you show your love for Christ. A deep love for Christ will help you face whatever comes your way because you will realize that you can love him by the way that you respond to trials and you'll realize that Christ is loving you even in the middle of your trials. When the early French Protestants, the Huguenots, were persecuted in the 17th century in France, many people were caught in worship. They were worshiping in secret to avoid being caught. But when they were caught, they they were enslaved, put in ship galleys, and they were chained to the bench and forced to row until they died. There is a museum in southern France that commemorates these martyrs, and right next to the galley and their giant oars are these words inscribed by one of those slaves. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. Can you recognize what figurative chains you're dealing with now as chains of Christ's love? Having an eternal perspective can do that. Let me clarify, I'm not saying that Christ claims or chains us or binds us in any way. He most definitely sets us free. And for the 17th century Christian who inscribed these words on his rowing oar, he was in the most desperate of situations, doomed to row to his death. And yet he was speaking about his living hope in Christ. So much so that with the little energy he had, he inscribed on his oar, not just for his own reminder, but for those who would come after him. And 
and be chained to the same bench and the same oar. He had an eternal perspective, and that is why he was able to say, in the midst of a trial that would take his life, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. Remember that uh, you are an elect and chosen exile. God in his love puts you where you are today. And if you love Jesus, you will hardly be able to wait to see him. Just like uh, these people Peter is talking to, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, even though we don't like to wait for much for anything nowadays, we enjoy anticipating things. This is the reason that movies put out trailers to build your anticipation for them. It's the reason we look forward to days like Christmas, weddings, graduation. It's the reason we often think, okay, what's next? What can I look forward to now? It's because there is a joy that increases alongside anticipation. And if we are anticipating Christ's coming, then our joy, I believe, should grow simultaneously. So I ask you, are you looking forward to Jesus' return? Is your anticipation growing? And if so, great. If not, why not? And these are the things, are, these, are there things that are bogging you down now, preventing you from looking ahead, distracting your focus? What changes might need to happen to our schedules or our budgets or things like that to focus on eternity? If this verse doesn't describe you or doesn't describe us, we have to ask why it doesn't. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. I think our joy is often robbed by our fixation on the present rather than the future. And God's words constantly tell us, look ahead, live for that, set your heart there, fix your eyes on Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is, set, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So joy is what helped Jesus endure the worst possible circumstances we can imagine. Joy. Joy was set before him, and now joy is set before us. Not just any joy. Rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory that is inexpressible. In other words, I can talk about um, this for hours, talk about it all day long. Words can't express it. It's quite literally joy beyond words. It says it's filled with glory, beauty, splendor, and honor. And Peter says this doesn't just describe our future reality. This should be our present reality. This should describe every Christian because every Christian is, in reality, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Present tense, we are already on the road of obtaining our salvation. This isn't something we need to earn or obtain God's favor for. Jesus already did that for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So once we have faith, that's all we're left to do is praise God. Rejoice in him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the very same things that bring us distress now will bring us joy and glory in eternity. 
So when your faith is mocked, laughed at, take heart. That will lead to, to joy. Your joy in the face of that won't make any sense to the world around you. It might not even make much sense to you. It's inexpressible, after all. When your family turns on you, it's hard. But it can be endured. But joy is still possible because Jesus will never turn on you. And you love him, and you believe in him, and he is returning to you one day. When you miss out on things now, or maybe you don't seem to have a blessed life as unbelievers around you, you can rest in the fact that you won't miss out on anything in eternity. Besides, you possess the most precious commodity on earth even now, in your faith. No matter what dangers, toils, or snares get thrown our way in this land of our exile, one day our faith will be sight, our anticipation will be fulfilled, our eyes will see that the one that we believe, the one that we love in and rejoice in now, and I am sure that it's going to send whatever joy we feel now into the stratosphere. And it will take an eternity to even attempt to express our joy to our God. Now I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your presence with us and just ask that you go out with us and continue to dwell with us, Lord. We love you and we cherish you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.